You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. getting started uh, this week. We're looking at broken people and the God who brings them together. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians for a little while. Uh, so as you may have noticed, we put a little bit of information right there uh, in your seats, uh, something if you want to do further study or just get a better grasp on uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, I would want to encourage you to, to take the time to read those. We should be putting those out peri- periodically throughout uh, the series here. We want to encourage all of our members to just take time, even uh, outside of Life Group and even outside of our Sunday gatherings, to, to, to study the book. And let's Let's get into what God has for us uh, here in the book. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, uh, my name is Ant. I'm the pastor here uh, at Midtown Two Notch. If you are a guest or a visitor, we're very glad that you're, you're here uh, worshiping with us today. I would ask that you would uh, fill out the bottom of that bulletin that's in your seat, especially if this is your first time, and you can just drop it in the offering basket when that comes around at the end. We would love to get to know you uh, a little bit better and just get the knowledge that you have been here uh, with us. Again, if you're new, if you can fill out the bottom, we just call it the sign and drop uh, for us. We would, we would greatly appreciate that. If you have your, uh, your smartphones with you and you want to scroll to 1 Corinthians, you can go ahead and do that. We'll be starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Again, chapter 1, verse 1. While you're turning there, um, uh, you may have noticed if you've been here for a little while, one of the things that we do when we preach uh, different series that we do. Sometimes we do a series that's based around a topic. So we'll look at a topic and we'll try to get into what does the Bible have to say about this specific topic. And sometimes we'll just pick a book and we'll say we're going to start at chapter 1 verse 1 and we'll go all the way until the end of the book. So that's what we'll be doing now. It, generally with a book as long as 1 Corinthians it takes us a little bit of time to be able to do that. But that, that is what we'll be embarking on for the next several months. We'll take a little bit of a break uh, around Christmas time and do our normal give series and we'll pick back up what our study on 1 Corinthians in the new year. Uh, today we'll be working through verses 1 through 17. We'll be emphasizing verses 9 through 17, but I do want to walk us through the first few verses as well. Let's get it started in chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll explain a little bit of background info on the book as well. Verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. So this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote 13 of the books in the New Testament. So uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you're very familiar with his, his writings as well. He said he's writing to the church of God in Corinth. So I believe this is the first Kojic church, the church of God in Corinth. Y'all didn't get the Kojic joke. Uh, this is a very diverse church for a few reasons. Uh, the church here in Corinth, or I should say a very diverse uh, city that the church was in. The church in Corinth is, because of the geography of it, it was very good for trade. It was a place that many people had to pass through if you're trading goods or spices or whatever it, it might be. So you get a lot of different people traveling into Corinth. And because the business was so good through the trade, a lot of people would stay there. Uh, even, even wealthy people would, would want to stay in Corinth because of how, how fruitful business would be because it's such a good area for trade. Now, that, that type of diversity in an in a, in a empire that was very polytheistic, so to speak. So it was an empire where they would allow you to worship. Well, you could worship any god you wanted to worship. You could make up a god if you wanted to. Only thing that the Roman Empire cared about was that you didn't go to anybody telling them that they need to stop worshiping their gods to worship your god. So, so different people worship different gods all the time. So you got this place, this city called Corinth, 
where you have a lot of diversity, people coming from all over and moving there, and there's no final authority on what is right and what is actually wrong outside of the, the, the Roman laws. So you, so you have just this, this hodgepodge of, of people committing various different types of sins and being really indulging themselves in different types of sin and lust because nobody can say, hey, you, you shouldn't do that because God says that that is wrong. So many people would just, would just pick a God that they would try to worship to try to be able to find most pleasure in whatever thing that they are after. So, for example, they would have a God of sex, a God of power, a God of success, a God of, of travel. In Corinth, there, are, there were 26 known, quote-unquote, holy places, 26, 12 temples. Basically, whatever you desire to find pleasure in, you would create a God, make a holy place for it, and anybody who also wanted to, I, I guess, reap some type of benefit or some type of pleasure or joy from that God, they would go to that holy place that you made. Corinth, because of all of this, began to get a very negative reputation to the point that if you were in the Roman Empire and, you, and there was a play or some type of theater going on and there was someone in there that was a Corinthian, someone who was from Corinth, they were oftentimes portrayed as, a, as an alcoholic or a drunk. The, the, the term Corinthian actually became a slang word for someone who was sexually promiscuous as well. So, so if someone's just sleeping around with anybody, you might be called a Corinthian at that time. So, so think Vegas, but probably worse. Right? This, this is where this new church of the church of God in Corinth, as Paul calls it, or the Christians that are gathered there in Corinth, this is where their church plant started. A place known for sin, known for debauchery. The church of Corinth that Paul is writing to, this, this young church plant, only a few years old when Paul would have written this letter to them, were called to be this new family, this new fellowship of believers that stood out and were distinct and different from the culture. They were to represent Christ. They were to display for their city and for the world what it was actually like to, to live life with God, to go through life with God and in relationship with God. In some Christian, Christian traditions, they would say they were called to be in the world, but what? But not of the world. They had some disagreements about what they looked like. About, about okay, well, where do we draw the line on certain things? I, do, do I just stick with what the culture is doing? What does Christ actually call us to do? So before this letter of 1 Corinthians was written, they wrote a letter to Paul with some questions. Okay, Paul, well, how do we handle this? Well, how do, how do we handle this? And Paul responds in this letter to them. Actually, it's, it's almost like a Q&A uh, response where he is saying, we'll go through a few chapters and he'll say, now regarding this topic or now regarding this topic, he's actually responding to what they asked of him. He is trying to help them to see things through the, through the lens of the word of God. Through the lens of the gospel, he, they, they, they still have these, these, these worldly goggles on, so to speak, and so their perspective is, is misguided because they're still viewing things and seeing things the same way that the world does. Basically, they were Christians, but they also wanted to live like the other Corinthians lived in their city. They wanted to be able to do all the things that they did before they became Christians. They were supposed to be affecting the culture, but they were being affected by the culture more than they were affecting the culture. Paul writes them this to let them know that they have this new identity now, that they're not just citizens of Corinth, but they're citizens of, a, of the kingdom of heaven now, that they find their primary identity in their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and not in the city of Corinth, because if that's where they primarily figure out who they are by looking at the culture around them, then they won't be distinct. They won't be the set-apart people that God has called them to be. So he consistently, you'll see this over and over in this book, he's reminding them of who they are. He, he over and over again gives these identity statements, and we'll get into one. I think it's in the next verse. 
Since they're citizens of the kingdom of God, their behavior, their thoughts, their perspectives are now to be shaped by the culture of the kingdom of heaven and not the culture of the city that they find themselves in. I used the term earlier that they were worldly. Paul even goes on to say, I believe it is in chapter 3, that I can't even address you as spiritual but as carnal or as worldly people. He said, I can't even talk to you about spiritual things because your whole perspective, your whole lens that you are seeing through is based off of the way the world does things, the way people do things who don't even know Jesus. I can't even, I can't even bring the Bible to you and say, okay, this is how we live because that's not even where your perspective is coming from because you're taking all your cues from the world that is around you. He said, I can't even address you the way I'm supposed to address a spiritual person. Because the Bible is not your standard, the Word of God is not your standard, but the way that you used to live and the way that you see people living around you is your standard. Paul continues to remind them of who they are to draw them out of this, to help them see things through the lens of the Word of God. To be worldly is to be more affected by the culture of the world than by the culture of heaven. It is to follow the flow and patterns of those that don't know Christ more than you follow the the pattern of Christ. It is to not have your mind renewed by the word of God. It is to not understand your true identity as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Basically, it's to be like, yeah, I know God says to live a certain way, but everybody else is doing this, so it can't be that bad, right? If everyone else is doing it. Let's continue on chapter 2. We'll pick up the beginning of chapter 2. We'll go through, I'm sorry, verse 2, sorry. We'll pick up in verse 2. We'll go through verse 3. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who are in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God the Father, sorry, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to emphasize two things that he says to them. He says that they're sanctified and he calls them saints. That's actually a play on words. I don't speak Greek very well, so forgive me on this, but the, the Greek word that for sanctified there is hagiazo. And the Greek word for saints there is hagios. He, he, he changes the form of the word. What, what he's saying to them ultimately is to be sanctified is to be set apart, is to be separate, is to be made holy and fit for the service of God. To be a saint is to be a holy one. Or to be saints is to be a group or a fellowship of holy ones, of, of set apart ones. This early in the, in, the, in the book and in the chapter, in the second verse of the chapter, he's already reminding them of their identity as saints. He's saying, you are to be set apart. I know what everybody in Corinth is doing, but you're saints. You've been made holy. You are the righteousness of God. You are to be different. You're not the same as them. You are a group of saints now. You you are sanctified by God. He is setting you apart for his purposes. Of course, you don't live the way that everyone else does. Before he goes into answering any of their questions, because he's going to answer a lot of questions based on this new identity that they have as saints. Before he answers any questions, he just reminds them. He's just trying to, to root them and ground them in their identity, in who they are. Holy, sanctified, saints. Continue on, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is about to 
go in on them, on all of their worldliness and all their sin and all their division and everything that they're doing wrong. And he's not going to pull any punches. But before he goes into that, he reminds them, and I'm grateful for y'all. I'm so grateful for y'all. When I pray, I just thank God for you all. And I know that God is going to sustain you and he's going to get you to the end and he's going to deliver you. Jesus is going to deliver you and make you blameless in the sight of God. I'm excited about that. I love that. He's reminding them. Now, I'm about to go in on what y'all doing wrong, but I want you to know that God is with you. He is going to sustain you and you are going to stand before God on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, blameless and spotless, wearing the very righteousness of God. He's rooting them in their new identity in Christ. This is very important. Very important. He's reminding them of God's mercy towards them. Let's keep it going. Verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In just a minute, Paul's going to call them out on, the, on all this division that has been working its way into the church. But he starts out by saying, hey, you've been called into the fellowship of Christ Jesus our Lord. That as Christians, we all have this in common, that we know Christ, that he knows us, that we are his, that he is ours. He died for us, and now we are his people. You share this fellowship in him now. This links you together. You are tied together as the people of God. He wants to remind them of this, of who they are. They're they're a part of this new fellowship now, that Jesus Christ is the basis of their unity. He's what their unity is found on. He's what knits them together. And then he makes this appeal to them. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Appeal. This, is, this word means, uh, in the Greek, it means to urge. It means to beg. It can mean to, to call to one side or to call someone to walk alongside you in something. Now, Paul, in this letter, he gives some commands. There are some times where he gives straight up commands. No, this is what you are going to do now. Right. There are times when he does that right here. He's saying, I'm, I'm just I'm just urging you. I'm just appealing to you. This is coming from a passionate place in Paul's heart where he's appealing to them that they would all agree. He so loves unity in the church. He hates division. So he just makes this appeal as, as a big brother, as a father figure to them, to, that they would agree with each other. He says that you that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. A division would be anytime we, we withhold or withdraw fellowship, uh, withhold fellowship from someone else. When we withdraw, withdraw from the fellowship that Paul was talking about in verse 9. Anytime we, we withdraw from that because of, uh, as we'll get into it in a little bit, because of their personal preferences, they were withdrawing from one another, not walking in fellowship and unity with one another. And Paul says I, it is his desire, he is, he is urging them that they, would, that they would agree and that there will be no divisions among them, not a single one. This is a diverse church he's writing to. You got people from all over. You got Jewish people. You got Greek people, different ethnicities. And he's saying, I don't want there to be any divisions at all among you, none, that you would never let anything as small as a personal preference prevent you from walking in fellowship with someone else who is a part of your church. This is what he's telling them. No divisions among you. He's making this, this urgent plea, this appeal to them that they would stop the bickering, that they would walk in unity, that they wouldn't separate themselves into cliques or groups inside the church. His appeal that they would, is that they would never let that happen, that they would be woven together as a family. Let's keep moving. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So we're talking about this unity. I want to make sure I explain 
what unity is not, because people oftentimes mix, mix, mix up what unity actually is. So uh, when I was in college, I, we, I was a part of a group that started a ministry at USC, and we, we had to put together a constitution so that the, so that the, the school will recognize us as a, as a recognized organization, a, a recognized campus organization. And so we had to put all these, these, these bylaws together, this constitution, and so we talked about what the, what the requirements are for somebody to be an officer or a leader in the ministry that we were starting. So we sent those in, and just certain things that we believed and that we held on to, that we, that we know are true from the Bible, and they contacted me back and was like, hey, we can't, you can't put this in your constitution because this is too exclusive. You're saying that people have to believe what you believe to actually be able to be a, a part of your group or more specifically to be a leader or an officer in your group. That was like, the, the, isn't, that, isn't that too divisive? Isn't that too exclusive? It's what they said to us. They said, you, you have to write this differently so that people who do not believe what you believe can be leaders in the ministry that you are creating. We needed to word it in such a way so that anybody could be an officer in our ministry or a leader that's recognized by the school. It's a fundamental flaw in what unity actually is. Many people actually believe that in order to achieve strong unity, we have to not take any very strong stances on anything that might be controversial. That in an effort to agree and just be inclusive for everybody, that we can't take any harsh stances on truth. And if we do so, then that's actually being divisive. Paul doesn't believe that. Paul says you need to be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. That there are certain things that you are going to have to agree on and say this is what it is and we're not budging on this. The reality is any group that, is, that has ever done anything uh, massively significant and beneficial for our world has, has written or unwritten core values and beliefs. Whether you write them down or not, any group that's actually making progress in what they're trying to accomplish has set goals, has set beliefs, has set values that, that determine who they are. That, that, you're not, that, that having these, these truths that we cling to don't actually cause division. They're what we unite around. It's what actually brings us together. If we would have just done away with in that ministry what we truly believed in and what we know to be true from the Bible, then the people that had united would have said, I'm not even a part of this anymore because I don't even know what this is. But there's a movement today, these days, a progressive movement that is basically blatantly stating that this, 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 this clinging that Christians do towards eternal objective truth actually is divisive and harmful, and it makes us bigots. Because we say that the Bible is true and the Bible is the final authority, not just for us, but for everyone. There are many who say, well, that's not actually bringing unity. But actually, if you don't have that, then you really don't have anything to unite around. Don't ever mistake unity for an unwillingness to take a stance for truth. Because shying away from the truth that unites us is what actually will cause the most division. He's saying unite around this truth that you have together. So there are certain things as Christians that we just hold on to. We call these closed-handed issues. There are some things we can disagree on that are open-handed, but there are some that are very closed-handed. That's like, hey, if we, if we don't agree with this, then we actually are not able to walk in unity together. Things like God is, is the creator of the world. Things like sin came in and corrupted our world. Jesus lived a perfect life in our place, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, defeating death. And, if, and through faith in him, we can be in his eternal kingdom forever when he comes back for his people. 
Certain things like God is the best, most satisfying, most joy-giving being and thing in the universe. These truths unite us. On these truths, we must agree. We must be in the same mind, the same judgment. And again, like that said, there are some things that we can also disagree on. We can disagree on personal preferences. We can disagree on things like what color we have in the room. Right? We can disagree on maybe different ministries, different types of outreaches that we do. Those are open-handed issues, and it's fine to be able to disagree and discuss those things. But there are some things that we must hold on to very tightly. The church in Corinth, they had allowed some of their personal preferences to cause division in their church. Let's keep reading verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. He said, yeah, I've been talking to Chloe and them. Y'all know Chloe and them? I've been talking to Chloe and them, and they're saying it's, it's quarreling among you. That there's this fighting, there's this, there's this bickering, there's this bitterness, these, these heated, angry arguments that are leading to bitterness and division that is going on in your presence, Paul says. Continuing in verse 12. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize into the household of, I think, Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. So there are a lot of Greeks that would have been there in Corinth. And one of the things that the Greeks very highly valued were these philosophers, these speakers, these teachers that, that would speak in very eloquent and wise ways. Right? So you may be familiar with many Greek philosophers that used to do this. So you got Plato, you got Aristotle, you got Socrates. So th these people came before Jesus. They were Greeks. They would come and kind of stand in the middle of maybe this big room or this big square, and they would just tell about their, their philosophies and how they believe life work and how they believe that we should live. And what people would do is they would click up and link up based on which philosophers they liked the most and they followed. And then they would look down on people who followed another philosopher, or another teacher, or someone else who, who spoke, who maybe they thought was more eloquent and more wise when they spoke. And so, and so in Corinth, you would have these people who's like, well, I follow, I follow uh, Socrates, or I follow uh, whoever it might be, Plato, Aristotle. And there were these divisions, these cliques. Now, that was for the Greeks. Now, for the Jews there, uh, they did a similar thing, not on, the, not on as big of a scale, with their different rabbis. So they'd be like, I, I follow this rabbi, I follow this, that, that rabbi, and if, and if our rabbis disagree, then we're probably not going to be able to walk in fellowship with each other because we're not speaking the same language, so to speak. And the church in Corinth, the exact opposite of what Paul is calling them to do, they took this cultural norm, and instead of being driven by the fact that they all follow Christ and that they're all in the fellowship of Christ Jesus, they began to do the same thing within the church with the different preachers in the church. So some said, I follow Peter or Cephas. And some said, I follow Paul. And some said, I follow Apollos. Apollos was, was Greek. He most likely was a very good speaker. He could speak very eloquently. So it's likely that many of the, group, many of the Greeks were wanting to follow him and, and kind of click up and link up with others who, who like to hear him, hear him preach or speak the most. And then there would be others who said, well, no, 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 most likely the Jews, since Paul was a Jew, was like, no, no, we, we, we follow Paul. Now, we, we follow Paul teaching. Paul's the one that can bring it now. 
You, you know Paul be bringing it. I don't know what y'all talking about with this Apollo stuff, but Paul, he can bring it. And some people followed Peter, uh, potentially because Peter walked with Jesus. He probably had many stories that he could share about Jesus. Apollos and Paul did not walk with him during Jesus' earthly life. So someone's like, no, no, I'm walking with the dude who walked with Jesus. I don't know who y'all walking with. But the dude who walked with Jesus, that's the one that I am following. That's the one that I am with. Did you see what they had done? They had taken what was already going on in Corinth. The way they had already lived before Christ brought it into the church, sprinkled a little bit of Jesus on it, and continued on with what they were already doing before they became Christians. Worldly. Allowing the world to dictate the way that they act. Allowing the world to dictate the way that they fellowship with each other. Allowing their preferences to take precedent over Christ himself, who is the one that we center our fellowship around as believers. So Paul, in those verses I just read, he says, I didn't come with eloquent and wise speech when I preached. That's not what I was trying to do. He wasn't relying on public speaking skills, even though many probably would have preferred that style of speaking from him. Probably wanted him to sound more eloquent and sound more wise, so to speak, like the philosophers. Maybe they wanted him to sound more academic. They were obsessed with their preferences when it came to the teaching and preaching of God's word. So much so that it caused division in the church. Paul said, I'm relying on the power of the message that I'm proclaiming. He said, I'm not relying on on the skill of the one that is proclaiming. I'm relying on the one that is being proclaimed. It's not about the one who is preaching. It's about the one who's being preached. It's not uh, the name of the one who's doing the baptizing. It's about the name you're being baptized into. And he's telling them as siblings, as brothers and sisters in the family of God, the things that unite us aren't the same as the things that unite those who are, quote unquote, worldly, who do not know Christ. They aren't to allow these preferences to cause them to click up into these different groups inside the church. We learn here that when you care too much about your own preferences in the church, it often will cause divisions. Same thing can happen in our church. If I, if you care too much about preferences, about the things that aren't the closed-handed issues, but more the open-handed issues, it will divide our church. It will cause division. Maybe you'll begin to look down on those who see things differently from you. Maybe you'll begin to link up with other people who see things the same way that you do, and you'll talk about the people who disagree with you in a condescending way. Maybe you have a tendency to fellowship more with the people that see things the same way that you see them as far as how we should operate and conduct ourselves as a church. This is divisive. I remember growing up hearing examples from uh, older uh, people in my family, aunts, uncles, things like that, about people arguing over the color of the carpet in the church. You don't have to worry about that because we don't own this building, so we don't put that together. (laughs) We don't control that at all. Glad to be able to take that anger away from you on that. For some people, it's like, should we do communion every week? I don't think we should do it every week. I heard from one pastor. Uh, he, 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 he's now leading a church where the pastor that was there before him had to step down for some reason, and now he's leading, and the, the members got into a fight over whether or not they should keep or cancel the Sunday evening service. Got into a fight. It's an open-handed issue. It's important. Yeah, it's important. It's still a preference. Still a preference. Maybe there are other ones that are more relevant to us, like... I don't know, style of worship music. I'm seeing much division. The keyboard is right here. Uh, 
There's been much division in many churches over what style of music should be done, over who should be leading the songs, over who should be playing what instrument, over who does not get enough time up front singing or or displaying their gifts. There's been much division in churches over style of worship music, over favorite worship leader. There's been division in churches over favorite preachers or favorite preaching style. I'm currently the only pastor here. You only got one shot. I'm sorry. For some, it's which ministry should we emphasize the most? For some, we need to put more in the kids' ministries. We need to put more in the outreach in the neighborhood. We need to put more into this. We need to put more in the homeless ministries. All great things. And no church can put a lot, well, at least no church our size can put a lot into all of those. If we're going to walk in unity as a church, every one of us who are a part of our church has to be willing to say, this is my preference, this is what I desire, but I know not all of my preferences are going to be met. If you're expecting all of your preferences to be met, you will be frustrated with every church that you are ever a part of. You will be frustrated. You will not be content. It will probably hinder you as you pursue, to pursue worship together as a church. It'll probably demotivate you from participating in the things that you actually care about in the church because you're just frustrated and bitter about the church. When we overemphasize our preferences, it causes division in the church, just like in the church at Corinth. I'm not saying it's wrong to have preferences. I'm saying it's wrong to when these preferences come up, to discuss them as if your way is the only way, to quarrel with other members and allow bitterness to grow and fester. I'm saying it's wrong for us to divide into cliques based on what our preferences are in our church that feel exclusive to those in our church and those outside of our church. I'm saying it's wrong to have that group of people that you always go to vent to because you know that they agree with you and y'all just going to get angrier and angrier together. I'm not saying it's wrong to have preferences. I'm saying it's wrong to have those those sessions that cultivate bitterness and anger within the church. I'm saying it's divisive. Some of us need to have some challenging conversations with others this week. This week. If there's someone who keeps coming to you and complaining over and over about our church, if they are a member, if they're complaining about a leader in our church, the way we do things in our church over and over, and especially if you have been uh, helping to cultivate this, this, a bitterness that is growing, you need to talk to them and say, this stops now. It's not going to happen anymore because I'm no longer going to be a part of allowing division to grow in our church. And every other time that they come to you on that same uh, mood, that same divisive rhetoric, you need to let them know that it is divisive. And if that is something that you have done, what if, and if you have been um, demeaning, belittling, talking down on any, anyone maybe uh, who is a leader in the church, maybe it's a life group leader, maybe, maybe it's someone else in the church behind their back, you need to go to them and you need to apologize. You need to confess and say, I, I, I've been doing this, this is wrong. I'm not going to do this anymore because you are being divisive. This is how church splits happen right? This is how in 10 years we got Midtown Three Notch off a belt line right here, right? Midtown Three Notch. Church splits happen something like this. It starts with just venting. I just got to get this off my chest. It's angry. I just got to, man, you won't believe what just happened, what I just heard. It moves into what I call group anger. Well, you angry about something? Now this person angry about something? Now all y'all angry about something together? Y'all just passing the anger back and forth? turns into bitterness if that sustains. 
Then you get this new group, this new division. Maybe it's a new group that stays in the church, right? Just this disgruntled group that stays in the church, and anybody who comes around, you make sure you share with them what, what you're disgruntled about. Or maybe if you bought that life, you just go start another church. Either way, I think it often starts with venting. And in and of itself, I'm not saying venting is bad. I will say we have to be careful about what we vent about to each other concerning the church. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. We won't have the verse up there. Actually, do we have the verse? Titus 3? We don't have, we have a verse. Sorry, I should have put that in there. Titus 3, Paul actually says, warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. In verse 11, he says, you may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned, Paul says. I'll read that again. Warn a divisive person once. Again, this is Titus 3.10 if you want to look it up just to, just to check me. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned, Paul says. Paul says, there's a mission that the church has, that we are to be about growing his kingdom, sharing who he is with those that do not know him. We do not have time for any type of division, any type of divisiveness. Warn the person, let them know. And in our church, if this happens, if there is division, we'll have a conversation. I'll say, this is warning number one. This is warning number one. And if it happens, this is second warning. This is warning number two. And then Paul says, have nothing to do with them. This is not a lack of love that Paul is talking about. This is actually a love for what God is doing in and through the church. This is a form of church discipline that Paul brings up. It's crazy because sometimes the things that should be uh, uniting us are the things that's actually dividing us. The things that that are frustrating you, what, what if you just humbly went to God, prayed about it, went to a leader in the church and was like, hey, this is an area of weakness in our church. I would love to see us grow in this area. How can I help? How can I serve in this area? That would actually unite us as a church. That would actually bring us together. That would actually be good for us as a church family to offer our our, our resources, our time, our energy, our sacrifice into whatever area we find frustration in. Part of the reason we're so divisive in, in these types of conversations it's because we have no idea what it really means to pour out our hearts to the Lord. Because we really don't know what that looks like on a practical day-to-day level. Psalm 142, verse 1 and 2 says this. This is David talking. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Check verse 2. I pour out my complaint before him. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. In my frustration, in times of complaint, I go to God and I pour it out. I don't know what image comes to your mind when you think of something being poured out. I think of a cup that has water or something. And when you pour it out, you empty it. You get it all out. You got frustrations with people in our church. You got frustrations with our church. You got frustrations with me. That's absolutely fine. I'm saying go to God first. Complain to God first. That's not divisive. He already knows how you feel about it. Go to God. I believe because we have no concept of what it looks like to really cast our cares on him because he cares for us, that all we have is these these moments of of, of rage and anger, and we go and spread it to all each other. And God's like, I'm your companion. I'm your friend. I'm the closest person to you that you know. Bring it to me. I can handle it. Bring it to me. I'm I'm not saying don't complain. I'm saying complain to God first. 
If you're anything like me, you'll do that. He'll show you stuff about yourself where you're off. He'll, he'll hit you and check you on your pride. And then you'll be freed up to actually talk about it in a productive way. But if all you got is venting, all you got is I'm just spewing everything that's in me, you need to do that with God. And after you've done that, okay, now maybe you can go and humbly and lovingly and prayerfully talk to the people that you need to talk to within the church. Complaining to others repetitively is often divisive, and it leads to more and more bitterness in the church. And at the root of it, oftentimes, is a shallow prayer life. A prayer life that doesn't get to the deep matters of our hearts. It doesn't get to the deep frustrations where we don't bring those to God and lay those out before him and pour those out to him. So we just have to do it with other people who are around just to get it out. And hear me on this. I know that some of you in this very room have been hurt by leaders in the church. Any leader that's not perfect is going to cause some amount of harm and damage and hurt within the church. It's it's unavoidable for any leader who is not perfect. In case you haven't noticed, we don't have any perfect leaders up in here. And so that means for some of us, we've been hurt, we've been frustrated very deeply by leaders in the church. And when I tell you not to complain in, 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 in divisive ways... I'm not saying that the hurt isn't real. I'm not saying that the frustration isn't real. I'm saying that it does not, that our hurt and frustration does not take precedent over Christ and the unity that he calls us to. As Paul says, is Christ divided? No, he is not. Oftentimes we have good reasons to complain. I'm just telling you, you're going to the wrong person first. If you're going to another member of our church before you go to God, talk to God about it. Pour out your complaint to him. After you do that, you'll be much better at addressing others in humility and love. For some of us, we aren't as obsessed with our preferences regarding things about how the church is run and about leadership in the church. But instead, we overemphasize our personal preferences in the church. Or we, we overemphasize the, uh, our preferences as far as what type of people we hang around within the church. And we're divisive in that way. We, we, we overemphasize how the relationships that we have with certain people in the church will affect us or cause us to feel. And so that determines for us who we were willing to fellowship within the church and who we're not willing to fellowship with within the church. It's still an overemphasis of preferences. It's not on a macro level. It's more on a micro, on a smaller person-to-person Level. We withhold fellowship or draw back from fellowship with others because we, we, we just want to be with people who are more mature than that, right? I just want to be with people who are more mature. These people are, are, are so draining. I just don't want to be around all the draining people. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just taking care of myself now. I'm just learning to take care of myself. So I can't be around draining people. I just want to be around more mature people. So we withhold fellowship even though Paul specifically calls out those who are strong to bear with the failings of the weak. That if you're really mature, you'll be quick to bear with those who are weak. You'll be quick to bear with the immature if you're truly mature. If you're unwilling to fellowship with somebody because of their immaturity, it reveals to you that you're immature. It reveals to you a lack of maturity. It's it's not that we reach some level of maturity where it's like, oh, now I want to hang with a mature Christian. I don't want to hang with with the babes in Christ anymore. It's like, no, you're acting like a baby now. You're the immature one. You just expose yourself. You just rattle yourself out. Or for some people, it's like, and I just want to fellowship with people more committed. People who are more committed to the church are the ones that I, I really want to, want to be around. The people who really want to get after, you know? People who really care. People who really love God. Those are the ones. I just, I just can't click with the other people. I, just, I don't know what they're, what they're doing. 
Or for some, it's what people, it's like, I don't, I don't know, they're just too messy. They're just too messy. I don't want to engage in all the mess and all the drama that comes with them. So I withhold fellowship from a, a believer, a follower of Jesus that is made in the image of God that we're called to be in this fellowship with. Or for many of us, and I talked about this on our family vacation trip, I think a week, a little over a week ago. For many of us, uh, and this is a big one in our church, uh, I just want to fellowship with people. I don't want to fellowship with people who aren't in my stage of life. Maybe it's a way to say it. People in a different stage of life than me, it's like, I don't know. I don't want to. It's as if you don't have so many things eternally in common with every believer, no matter what stage of life they are in. But it's like, I don't, I don't want to spend time. They, they're not going to understand me and what I'm going through. So with, we withhold fellowship from those that we don't believe we have a lot in common with. To try to bring this to a close, I want to point us back to how Paul responds to this news that he hears of their quarreling, quarreling and division. Verse 12, same, same chapter, verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Paul says, was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul recognizes the problem here. He's saying the thing that is actually causing the division is you've elevated your preferences over Christ. He's saying that we often find at the root of division in the church, the thing that's causing people to withdraw from fellowship to others is putting preferences over Christ. It's actually worshiping our preferences instead of worshiping Christ himself. Paul's saying, is Christ divided? Paul's saying, was Paul crucified for you? Was I crucified for you? Is, am I the one that died for you? Then why are you centering your, your fellowship around me? We're called to the fellowship of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul's saying the problem is your idolatry. That, 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 that Christ doesn't reign supreme in your life. Christ doesn't reign supreme in your heart. And so you're able to elevate other things over him and over fellowship and unity in him. Saying your, your division is a worship issue. It's a worship issue. And when Paul asked the question, was Paul crucified for you? He's redirecting their eyes off of him. Idolatry means our eyes are too glued and stuck on things other than God. So we, we prize other things more than Christ himself. Paul is redirecting their eyes. and He's saying, am I the one who was crucified for you? And this is what we need to ask through any preferences that, that would lead to division in our church. Is, is that the thing that saved me? Paul's saying, am I the one that suffered this horrific physical pain on the cross for you? Am I the one that took the wrath of God on your behalf that you deserved? Am I the one that died and was raised from the dead with all power in my hands and now seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father until he comes back to get us? Paul said, did I do that? If not, then I am not worthy of being the center of this fellowship that you have. I am not worthy for you to esteem so highly that you might decide whether or not you fellowship with other believers based off of me. Paul saying, you're idolizing me. You're idolizing your preference. Paul is teaching us that if we're divided, it's because we've placed our preferences over the one that died for us. And I think Paul would ask us that same thing today. Did that thing die for you? Whatever it is, whatever it is you're, you're divided over, how we do ministry, how we do worship music, what we emphasize more than anything else, who is up front more than, any, more than anyone else, is, is it, did that thing, did, did, is it big enough to die for you 
and save you. And if not, then it's not worth dividing the people of God over. It's not worth being divided over. So as Paul is just reminding them of who it was that died for them, I think it's appropriate today that we take communion together. As Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of my broken body, my shed blood. And when we approach the communion table in just a few minutes, we remember remember that this is what we fellowship around. That this is what our fellowship is centered on as a church. This is what our family is centered on as the church of God. The broken body, the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if whatever we we have that we care about so much, if it's not more important than that, if it's not bigger than that, it is not worth our unity. It is not worth dividing us as a church. I want to pray for us, and then I'll I'll pray for our time of, of communion. Father, thank you for your son. Your son that came and died for us, your son that, 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 that came, Father, and did for us what no one else would and what no one else actually could do. And Father, we are grateful that you did that. Would you help us to see that as supremely glorious? That we would so value that, that we would see so much glory in your sacrifice for us, that we wouldn't desire to do anything that would, that would divide the unity, that would hinder the unity of your people as we are centered around your love for us. Father, keep us united. Protect us from the attacks of the enemy, the one who would want to see us divided, who would want to see us bicker and quarrel and have bitterness with each other in the church. Father, would you protect us? Would you give us strength? Would you defeat all of his plans and schemes against us as a church? And would you unite us through the power of your spirit as a mighty force for your kingdom that that pushes back and defeats the kingdom of darkness through your power, through your Holy Spirit, to see more and more people come to know you, especially in this two-notch corridor that we find ourselves in, that you have called us to. Father, would you help us to see the foolishness of allowing our personal preferences to get in the way of what you have called us to? Will you help us to rightly value you and how good you have been to us? And Father, as we partake in communion today, would you remind us of the depth of your sacrifice, the depth of your love, how real your your care and your mercy is towards us. And we, we see it as the thing, the one thing that is truly, truly worthy of us centering our fellowship around. And that's you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.